This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. There are some things that we're quite certain that we know in terms of the patterns of the past. There are certain eras that are simply etched in our historical consciousness in such a way that we think we have a handle on them. We think we know what they mean. That's true of the Victorian age, and as we shall see in this conversation, it's true in ways that are profoundly untrue. Timothy Larson has been on the faculty of Wheaton College since 2002, where he holds the Carolyn and Fred McManus Professorship of Christian Thought. That's one of the most esteemed endowed chairs in the world of evangelical higher education. He earned both bachelor's and master's degree from Wheaton College before earning his Ph.D. in history from the University of Stirling in Scotland. His intellectual interests and teaching areas are in the fields of British history, historical theology, Christian thought, intellectual currents, and controversies. He has been elected a visiting fellow for All Souls College at Oxford for the Trinity term of 2012. He's the author of several books, including, most recently, A People of One Book, The Bible and the Victorians, published by Oxford University Press. Professor Larson, welcome to Thinking in Public. I'm glad to be here. Professor Larson, there are certain things we just know, those of us who have any historical consciousness at all. For instance, we know that the Dark Ages were uniformly dark, and we know that the Victorians lost their faith. Do we actually know these things? Well, we don't have time to get too far into the Dark Ages, but that's wrong as well. Uh, Even the, the classic Dark Ages monk, the Venerable Bede, knew that the world was round, for example. So there's a mythology there. But as for the Victorians... They were a deeply passionate people of faith. That was overwhelmingly the dominant tone of the society. And the fact that they cared about doubt so much is a reflection of how much they cared about faith. People who are not interested in faith are not concerned about doubt. So the Victorians talked about doubt a great deal, not because they didn't have faith, but because precisely they thought faith mattered. Well, it's a very interesting argument. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I would think that amongst the uh, the historians, and especially those whose field is intellectual history, perhaps your most controversial rereading is that of the Victorian era as something other than, well, the big story being the loss of faith. But in order to understand that, let's talk about the conventional wisdom when it comes to the Victorian age, particularly in Great Britain, and particularly as it, it earns that kind of reputation as the era of the loss of faith. How did it get that designation? Yes. Well, the Victorian era was a time when people were more willing to talk publicly about doubt. So there was less restrictions on uh, what job you could do if you denied the Christian faith, for example. So there is a change that's happening, but it's more of a conversation that in the past was held in people's parlor rooms among their friends, was now much more public. Uh, But in truth, Overwhelmingly, again, people were, were people of passionate faith, and what happened in the 20th century was that scholars became interested in the people who were doubters in the Victorian period, and because they assumed that they were ahead of the curve, that this was where the world was going. They had a, a, a secularization thesis in their mind that ultimately the world would not be religious. So the people who lost their faith became to them the most interesting people of Victorians, because they thought that they were prescient, that they were telling us where the world was going. Well, you know, I think I've read all your published work, and I have to tell you, it's absolutely fascinating. I've been interested in it for a long time uh, in terms of my own project of dealing with, for instance, the emergence of atheism as a major force in Western intellectual thought. 
And, uh, and thus, looking back to the Victorian age is, is kind of a reflex. So, so let me just mm. run through the course of intellectual history in, in, in terms of why the Victorian age would appear to be rightly characterized mm. as, a, as, as uh, an era of the loss of faith. Uh, first of all, you, you have what might be considered kind of the settling in of the Enlightenment challenges. And, and not only that, but the Enlightenment challenge to, to, to revelation, uh, to the supernatural, and to all the rest – eventually reaching down from the intellectual elites through the process of, of England's very, very uh, systematic educational system deeper and deeper into the, the different classes of culture. And especially amongst the more literate class, th- there appears to be almost a contagious loss of faith in, in mm-hmm. which you have so many of the most important figures uh, of thought related to, uh, to, to British literature and, uh, and life and thought and especially those who've been connected to kind of the high church party in the Church of England, all of a sudden appear to be announcing their doubts. But you're suggesting that that's overblown, and the doubts have been there for some time, but perhaps there's now a, a cultural openness to discuss them. Yes, and I, I, I like the way you set that up, because there was a kind of intellectual fashion as well. I think that there was a certain elite culture that, um, you know, where it became fashionable to doubt, that it, you, you looked like you were part of the trendy movement. But that goes away quite quickly. So if you look in the interwar period a few de- decades later, even especially, as you mentioned them, high church Anglicans, Anglo-Catholics, you have people like T.S. Eliot and Graham Greene and Auden and uh, Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis. You have this whole flowering of the British literary intelligentsia being people who are uh, passionately talking about faith again. So I think the story often gets told as if thinking people learned that Christianity was not true, and then henceforth and forevermore, intellectuals go on knowing better. Where in reality, you just have a kind of bubble there where it became fashionable in late 19th century for certain kind of elite figures to say that they were doubters. And it certainly was fashionable. I mean, we, all you need to do is mention something like Dover Beach, Matthew Arnold, and yeah. And you recognize that, that uh, a good deal of, of how we come to understand the literature and the thought of the age, including the background for the evangelical revival in the late 19th century, is over against this very public, uh, very elite doubt. Mm-hmm. The evangelical revival actually um, is part of the, the sensibility that is creating this. Uh, evangelicals taught people that it matters very much what you really believe, what you believe in your heart, not just something that you're willing to give lip service to, but what you truly, truly hold to. And so that's, that sets the, the standard really high for honesty and integrity, and that leads certain kinds of Victorians to say, well, I have doubts. I want to be honest about that. And so again, in the 18th century, it would have been um, the assumption that you wouldn't say that out loud. You'd only say that in discreet company, where I think it's precisely because of evangelicalism that people feel a necessity to talk about those things more candidly and publicly. When I wrote my book on the new atheism, I discovered, somewhat to my surprise, that the word atheist was apparently coined, at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary, by Miles Coverdale uh, mm. during the Tudor period. Before that, they really didn't need the word. And, of course, it was, uh, I guess, Thomas Huxley who yes. invented the word agnostic. Uh, somewhere between, well, uh, knowing and not knowing, uh, and certainly somewhere between theism and atheism, he tried to create this, this new middle ground where doubt was more or less uh, the, the, the principle of thought. That's right, and uh, fascinatingly, uh, he seems to have created that uh, as a biblical allusion to the Apostle Paul referring to the unknown God, and he wanted to highlight what we don't know uh, for sure about God, and so he sees the Apostle Paul as emphasizing this underdetermined uh, theology 
so Huxley himself was was deeply into a biblical and theological debate and culture, uh, and so although he uh, emphasized agnosticism, and he certainly was annoyed by certain Christians who he thought were smug and pronounced too quickly and knew too much or, or thought they knew more than they knew, um, he nevertheless wrestled with faith in, in pretty deep ways, I think, for his whole life. Well, the reason I began as I began asking you about the Dark Ages and the Victorians is because uh, we do tend to think in terms of historical generalizations. And to some degree, I guess that's just rather necessary as we try to keep an intellectual uh, frame around our understanding of history. But but why is it that this this one-sided reading the Victorians is so dominant among intellectual historians? There's a couple reasons, I think. Again, I think it reflects the interest of the scholars themselves for a long time. The scholars personally thought that faith was on the decline and that doubt was winning, and therefore they took that as the most important thing to focus on, not the, not the largest thing happening, not the, the thing that was representative of the age, but the thing that they thought was representative of the truth. Uh, and that expectation, I've actually wrote to one of the key scholars who wrote a book like this, and she wrote back to me quite candidly, I had no idea that faith would be this vibrant in the 21st century. I thought it was dying off. Uh, so that was part of of the expectation that created this context, for sure. Um, the other thing is this whole mythology of the conflict between um, faith and science. So there's there's been a lot of people who've tried to discredit Christianity by seeing it as anti-scientific, and therefore um, they had this whole story about Darwin coming along and disproving Christianity, and therefore henceforth, once again, faith is not credible. And because so Darwin, because Darwin sits right in the middle of the Victorian age, that becomes a nice shorthand for that whole um, way of constructing uh, the relationship between faith and science, which is, again, a, a, as false as uh, these other things we've been talking about. Now, in your own work, Crisis of Doubt, Honest Faith in 19th Century England, uh, also published by Oxford University Press, you use several different historical figures in order to show a counter-movement, and that is those who did not lose their faith, but rather, having previously been skeptics, regained their faith, or gained it for the first time. Talk mm-hmm. about some of those figures and, and how you were drawn to that area of research. Yes, I'll start with the end. I, I was drawn to it because I was amazed. I, I did my um, Ph.D. work on mainly nonconformists, as it's called in England, Baptists, Congregationalists, groups outside the Church of England, in, in Victorian England, uh, on their political views. And I would come across these figures who often had been uh, working-class figures who had been politically radical, and that's how they got on my uh, reading list. But I would find out in, in a footnote or just on the margin that after having years of being a major champion of atheism, they had come to faith. And part of what intrigued me was how uninterested scholars were in this. It seemed to me uh, quite an amazing thing. However, even if you're just, you know, looking at history in general, if somebody had spent, uh, you know, their career passionately arguing one political position and then had switched to the opposite, you would think, oh, that's interesting. What, what, what made that change? Uh, but these scholars weren't interested. It was a narrative that they didn't care about. And so I started to pursue them. And what I found was, again, these are names that are, are forgotten because um, scholars haven't been interested in preserving people who were who atheist leaders who came to faith. And history tends to, to, to get rid of most people anyway, so uh, they're not names that most people know today. But in their day, they were the people that would have been named. If you said, who are the leaders of organized atheism in this country, they would have named people uh, like Thomas Cooper, 
like Joseph Barker, like um, William Hone and George Sexton, and they for years gave the main lectures in London that advocated an atheist point of view that um, attacked Christianity. They wrote for the main or edited the main radical newspapers and journals that were from a skeptical point of view. And then they came to faith, and then they spent another career, as it were, explaining why their ideas had been wrong, why Christianity was true, and defending the faith in lectures, in publications, and on and on. Now, it's very interesting. On, 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 in your book, when you talk about the question of how many reconverts were there, uh, you, you mentioned this. You say, finally, fellow scholars have uh, often gone on to comment in the words of one professor of modern British history at an English university in a letter to me, quote, more people went the other way, of course, end quote. And, and you're not arguing that more people were reconverts than, than had lost their faith, but rather that this is, uh, this is a part of the story that just hasn't been told. Well, yes. And and again, I, I go on to say the absurdity of that argument, because you can't have a greater set than the set that it's being drawn from. Um, so, but many more people had faith than lost it. <laughs> so there are many more people of faith in the Victorian period than there are people who are, who are skeptics. Yes. Um, uh, but I see them as, as telling, and I see them as telling because um, it's precisely the question that people don't think is in play. It's the intellectual credibility of Christianity that they gave their life to. They carefully sifted the arguments against Christianity, all of the best arguments, uh, Hume on miracles, and, and uh, what, what do we do with the scientific evidence of Darwinism, uh, what do we do with biblical criticism from Germany, whatever corrosive ideas were out there for traditional faith, they read it hard, they sifted those ideas, and in the end, they said that faith is satisfying intellectually, and it's credible, and I'm willing to stand up on a platform and debate you and give a public lecture and write books and explain why. You know, it's very interesting, the old conventional wisdom here that in polite company you don't discuss religion and politics. It's very interesting. You look back at the Victorians and, and you look at the kinds of, uh, of periodical literature they were reading. You, you look at the kinds of letters that they were writing. And you look at the kind of conversation that goes on uh, virtually at all levels of society. It looks like they talked about little else than religion <laughs> and politics. That's right. And they talked about it uh, with great, passion and learning. You, you look at those Victorian quarterlies and reviews, and uh, I covet publications like that today, of that seriousness, where Absolutely. you get an article that really unfolds an argument carefully. Now, let me ask you a question that I, th I think is, uh, is rather necessary at this point, and it, it's one that, uh, that you are in a unique position to speak to, and that is this. Just how important is the Victorian age, especially the Victorian age in Great Britain we're talking about here, to our understanding of Christianity in the modern world, and to the nature of what it means to be an evangelical. Yes, I, I think it's important uh, for both of those things. Uh, it's important for our understanding, uh, both for what they stood for and for these misperceptions that have been uh, perpetuated into, into modern thought. So there are ways in which the conversation has become distorted because of myths about the Victorians. Uh, but in truth, almost all of the issues that we are wrestling with today that have salience for us, the Victorians um, had a version of that conversation that is still ongoing. So uh, how do we think about um, uh, people in other parts of the world? How do we think about uh, missions and the colonial encounter and uh, what it means uh, to think theologically about people who practice a different religion? 
what do we think about the nature of the Bible and its composition and its truthfulness? Um, what do we uh, think about issues of uh, sexuality and morality? You know, almost all the issues that, that, that are still the issues that we are addressing today and thinking through um, are issues that the Victorians had a conversation about if they, that they either started or added to, uh, and therefore it becomes a, a kind of seabed for so much of what we're doing now. Setting the record straight is an important part of the ongoing historical conversation. Historians present their reading of history, and then it is the fodder of conversation for other historians. It becomes a matter of thesis and then antithesis and then an ongoing conversation in terms of the understanding. That's why there's so much interest in revisionist history. It's because we have a history that has been received, a standard version in terms of a standard narrative, and yet historians are going back and asking, was that really the case or is that all to the story? That's what makes Timothy Larson's work on the Victorian so interesting. He does tell us a great deal of interesting material about what we think we already know. But it's even more important he comes along and says there was more to the story. It should have been seen. And now, because of his research, we're talking about it. Professor Larson, when you think of the Victorians, it's hard to imagine a Victorian without his or her Bible. Uh, and uh, th this was the great age of biblical literacy, and especially in Britain. You've made the point very clearly that the Bible was at the center of, uh, well, just about the entire culture, such that every single individual had to have some understanding of where he or she stood vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Bible. Your new book, A People of One Book, The Bible and the Victorians, published by Oxford University Press, is, is really a magnum opus on this. Now, now, how, again, did you come to this research interest? It was something that I kind of realized was hiding in plain sight. Scholars did not want to talk about this uh, for a variety of reasons. Not that they would deny it, but they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't focus on it. They wouldn't um, do any work on it. And there's multiple reasons for that. One is that they just find the Bible and commenting on the Bible boring. So major Victorian figures uh, wrote at length about the Bible. It's what they cared about uh, most. Even T.H. Um, Huxley. Um, although coining the word agnostic, wrote book after book about the Bible. Uh, Florence Nightingale, uh, famous for her nursing program, uh, just wrote and thought about the Bible all the time. And that was typical. But scholars today don't want to read that material. And also, scholars today are, are uh, biblically illiterate themselves, so they're not catching the biblical illusions in their own subject matter. And they misunderstand what these people are saying, or they latch on to it as, you know, revealing some, you know, hidden dark secret about them because they don't understand biblical language, and so they can't get the resonance of it. Um, so I just, I just wanted to set the record straight because yeah. I could see that that there was so much that was being missed and misunderstood. You know, if you're trying to come up with a bad joke, that uh, joke could involve E.B. Pusey and uh, T.H. Huxley and C.H. Bergeson walking into a bar, you know, to fit, yeah. <laughs> to fit that, old, uh, that old trope, you know, where is this story going to go? But I've never known of a book that, that puts those figures, along with several others, I into one frame of reference, and that frame of reference having to do with our understanding of Scripture. Uh, to my knowledge, you really hadn't written about Spurgeon before. Uh, at least with this uh, with this kind of approach, and yeah. and so you begin with one of the Tractarians and you, the, the highest of high church Anglicans, and and, and then you end with uh, with the nonconformists, and in between you've got downright uh, well unbelievers, mm -hmm. but all of them defined themselves in terms of the Bible in one way or another, either by accepting it or rejecting it, obeying it, disobeying it, yeah. 
uh, you know, the, the, the status of the Scripture was so central to Victorian culture, it was that one question they could not avoid. Absolutely. And, and so scholars have been interested in those who defy the Bible, but what they haven't been able to notice is if you spend your lifetime trying to write against the Bible, <laughs> clearly it's got underneath your skin, and you think it's absolutely central. So uh, what was more interesting to me was not that they were objecting to the Bible, but that they couldn't get around it. They had to spend their life attacking it. Uh, and that seemed to be the negative image of the centrality of Scripture, which, of course, for most people, was the most beloved book in their life, the most beloved book imaginable, something that they read literally every morning and every night, which was the great comfort of their lives, where they turned in suffering, where they turned in grief, where they turned... Uh, to find meaning and purpose in their lives. You know, it was said of the Lutheran Reformation that at the end of that Reformation, every Lutheran had two books in his or her hand, the Bible and the hymn book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, I guess you could say by the certainly the beginning of the Victorian era, given the, uh, the dissemination of literature, the, uh, the, the massive printing industry that emerged there, virtually everyone could have the Bible and I guess the Book of Common Prayer if they were Anglican. Uh, or if you were Spurgeon, you were putting out just uh, tons and tons of printed material all the time. But the Bible was was also a part of the school curriculum, and and it was it was a part of the ongoing conversation. You know, looking at the speeches of, of not only Gladstone, but for instance, even Disraeli, you, you got all yeah. these scriptural references. Absolutely, and, there, and and yeah, everybody quotes scripture in public um, speeches, uh, and 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 um, not just the few most common texts that that, that a minimal biblical literacy would allow you to know. They assume a great depth of biblical literacy in their audiences, even though their audience is a political audience or a social reform audience or on some other subject matter, they are assuming uh, that they all know the contents of the Bible uh, deeply. Yes, it, uh, it, it was by far the norm, irrespective of people's denominational identity, our own kind of sense of fervor in their spiritual lives, that people learned how to read on the Bible, that it was the main textbook in schools, whether they were um, schools that were officially religious or that were, that were not intended to be religious, it didn't matter. Uh, Huxley himself signed a resolution that said that the Bible was the first um, point of curriculum in state schools. After it came reading, writing, and arithmetic. The first wow. subject matter was Bible, then reading, writing, and arithmetic, and that was what he thought was a good state education for elementary school children. You have a chapter in here, for instance, on the Unitarians. I was reading a, a, a work on Charles Darwin some years ago, and I came across something that, that to my evangelical sensibilities, was, was, was just something of a, a surprise. For instance, it, it said that, uh, that both the evangelicals and the, uh, the Unitarians taught Sunday school. And, and then it's, speaking of the Unitarians said that uh, they would actually more or less teach the Bible as the Bible, and they would simply assume yeah. that children, once they reach a certain age, would be able to handle uh, the fact that uh, that they didn't understand these things the way they had been taught, and it, it was kind of the the mirror image of what happened in in evangelical circles, where where parents read these Bible stories to their children and then thought, well, when they grow grow to be older, they'll understand them at greater depth. So, but nonetheless, these children are taught the same stories. Yes, and and part of what I don't really emphasize strongly in the book, but is that all of these traditions are getting pulled by the gravitational force of evangelicalism to a degree. So even if you're a Unitarian, your piety looks, from our perspective today, surprisingly evangelical, that you are reading the Bible day and night, and you are uh, meditating on it. These, pa- these Unitarian pastors are sending uh, verses to their parishioners, saying, the Lord, live this on my heart for you. Uh, and I-, I take that as a tribute to how strong the evangelical revival had stamped the whole culture, so that other traditions are being pulled into those ways of piety. 
Now, when it comes to Victorian morality, it, it is interesting that, again, it was based explicitly, at least as they understood it, on the Scriptures. Uh, anyone making a moral argument had to, mm. had to argue on the basis of some kind of, of biblical influence and authority. And, uh, and even those who denied the supernatural content to the Scriptures, at least at that point, by and large, uh, certainly the Victorians, who, who were uh, the skeptics, still wanted to hold to something very similar to a biblical morality, which they saw as indispensable to human happiness and flourishing. Oh, absolutely. The, 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 and, and what they meant by morality was traditional Christian morality. And, and they were deeply insulted if you said that they did not hold to morality. And they totally assumed that morality was defined in the same way as Christians define. Again, that's a great irony now if you look at how uh, agnostics, atheists, and skeptics in the 20th century um, pull away from Christian morality and um, you know, see it as this kind of unsubstantiated hangover, where, where uh, in the Victorian period, atheists thought it was a great insult if you didn't think that they held to the exact same morality. They thought that, that, that morality was just morality, and, it, and now, from a 20th century perspective, that's called Christian morality, but for them, it was just morality. Now, in one of your earlier works uh, on the Victorians, a work entitled Contested Christianity, the Political and Social Context of Victorian Theology, uh, that published by Baylor University Press, you, you mentioned, and and look closely at someone who's always been an issue of fascination to me, and that's Bishop Colenso. C- mm. Could you just tell us that story? It seems to me to be one of the most paradigmatic stories of, of the uh, Victorian coming to terms with uh, biblical criticism and its consequences. Yes. Colenso um, became a, a liberal, theologically liberal Anglican. He was uh, deeply influenced uh, by F.D. Morris, who um, would set people in a liberal direction, but Morris himself was quite a mystery. His, his, his theological language was enormously vague, and so what precisely he meant was never clear, but he got in trouble for denying eternal punishment. Morris did. So, uh, Colenso, and Colenso, in, in, in kind of one of the weaknesses of uh, Anglican uh, training in the Victorian period, had, had been a great mathematician, studied mathematics, and then had gotten ordained. So he'd never gotten a proper uh, theological and biblical training. And, he, and he's appointed as bishop to Natal. So he goes off as a missionary bishop to work among the Zulus. And he then starts to write liberal uh, theological works and works of biblical criticism from his position in Africa. He, he claims that this comes out of his encounter with the Zulus, which, which is true in the sense that I think when he realized when he tried to teach others that he didn't believe some of this himself. Uh, but I think he uses the missionary position a little bit to kind of, um, as a rhetorical device, um, to, to, to kind of structure some of this. But in truth, he, he kind of, um, loses his theological moorings and then, um, starts to write books of radical biblical criticism. He thinks of himself as a kind of new reformer. So I think he thinks he's, he's kind of leading a great movement. Uh, but the reaction is quite, negative uh, across the spectrum. Even people like Matthew Arnold, who is very theological liberal in his own way, was embarrassed by the crudeness of Colenso's arguments. Um, and so there's a pretty strong negative reaction. But for a bit of a legal muddle, he, he still gets to retain the legal rights of being uh, a bishop, but he's treated as excommunicated by the other Anglican bishops. You know, it's a fascinating story. And, and, and kind of the talk on the street about Colenso was that he went to convert the, uh, the heathen and became one. Yes, exactly. And uh, and yet, I have to say, as a theologian in the 21st century, with grave concern for uh, for 
biblical authority in in terms of uh, of how it is had is functioned or, uh, or or been denied over the last uh, say two centuries it's clear to me in retrospect that this incident was telling in more ways than one. But the, the thing I want to ask you here is that when Bishop Colenso began to, to write this biblical criticism, he does seem to have that that uh, Mauritian kind of influence in the background, but he also appears to be kind of doing it, uh, well, just on his own. In other words, he, he's, he's, he's making moral judgments about the Scriptures. You know, Professor Larson, I'm thinking of the fact, for instance, that he would say, how in the world can I tell the Zulus not to involve themselves in tribal warfare when the Bible has tribal warfare? It, yeah. It's a very simplistic hermeneutic. It, 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 it's kind of embarrassing this is coming from a bishop of the church, but he, he appears to be just making these moral judgments about Scripture. Yeah, I think actually the, the moral is the exact right word there. I think he came to find the Bible morally offensive. And so he needed some way to process that. And what he does is he uses higher criticism as a way of saying we don't have to take the Bible as true, which then frees him to, to just be able to reject texts that bother him. Uh, so I think a, a certain kind of moral sensibility is actually driving his rejection of the Bible, and then his kind of mathematical um, attack on the Bible is really a, a way for him to get out of this uncomfortableness he has with not knowing what to do uh, with texts that bother him. Well, I look at him with great interest because it, it's important as a case, not only in terms of how he developed his thought and disseminated his thought and, and its mm-hmm. impact, but the fact that it appears to me that the Church of England made more or less a decision not to deal with this head-on as a theological issue. And I would suggest that many of the subsequent issues faced by the Anglican Communion can be traced back to a decision in this case, just simply not to deal with this as a theological issue, but rather to deal with it more or less as a matter of uh, of the abuse of office. Yes, and, and what the Victorians find progressively is that your status as a priest or bishop in the Church of England is a legal status and not a spiritual status. And again and again, the courts refuse to allow the church to discipline somebody. And yeah, that is the turning point, where you get a church that functionally cannot uh, call anybody of its own a heretic and therefore bring discipline to them. Now, to, to swing to the other side, so to speak, having dealt with Galenso, in your new book, and that is uh, a people of one book, the Bible and the Victorians, in chapter 10, you deal with C.H. Spurgeon. So in, in dealing with Spurgeon, whom evangelicals think they know so well, was there anything yeah. in particular that surprised you as you dealt with him in light of this research? Uh, there, there are many things uh, that surprised me. Again, not they're, they're reinforcing, I think, what we know of Spurgeon, but to, to me anyway, in much greater depth. So, for example, everybody knows that he, his sermons were hugely successful. What I never knew was that he would come out before his sermon. And he would have a whole chapter of Scripture read, and he would exposit that chapter of Scripture, verse by verse. And so his sermon, which was often much more aimed um, at the heart and a response, was only one half of his teaching uh, on any given Sunday. The other half was an exposition of a, of a text of Scripture, a chapter of Scripture, usually. And uh, that part of his ministry I, I had never heard of, uh, but it revealed to me the depth of his determination to have a biblically literate uh, congregation. And just when I started to look in, 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 at how much work he put into uh, the Treasury of David, this multi-volume commentary on Psalms, and many other projects like that, that were, that were not just kind of a collection of his addresses or whatever that could be turned into a book, but it is work he'd already done. It, this was additional labor for a man whose commitments were staggering. 
And it showed me something about his passion for Scripture, his intellectual uh, rigor and intellectual curiosity, and his desire to give resources to the church that would feed them. Well, by the time you come to the end of the 20th century, and uh, excuse me, the end of the 19th century, kind of the close of the Victorian age, as the 20th century is now dawning, uh, you really have a choice, don't you? I, I mean, you, you have uh, a people of one book, but some very divergent understandings uh, now of the status and nature of that book and the influence of that book, and, and increasingly even the teachings of that book. So, in other words, where did this consensus break down, and, and where did it lead? What breaks down, that, that again, the hidden thing that interests me most is teaching our people the contents of the Bible. So, once you've taught them the contents of the Bible, then there could be a discussion and an informed argument about theological positions, about ecclesiastical positions. Uh, but what changes in the 20th century dramatically is this very tool that would make that an informed, interesting conversation. Um, and my own view of that is, is there's a wider breakdown of spiritual formation, or even uh, just kind of intellectual formation, which has something to do, again, causes are often, you know, there, there, are, there are multiple causes. So I'm naming one here. I don't want to be reductionistic. Uh, but there's a real uh, move towards a permissive society which makes it much harder to tell children to do something because it's the right thing for them to do, whether they want to do it or not. So the Victorians were clear, you're going to Sunday school, you're going to learn this, you're going to memorize this, you're going to read this, because we can see as adults that this will be useful to you. As the 20th century progresses, in the second half of the 20th century, parents more and more, and teachers even, think, well, the kids hate doing it, maybe we should make them do it. Uh, if they're going to resist it, we'll, let, we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll cave in. And so you end up with... Uh, children no longer being given the tools and the resources for uh, deep literacy and for biblical knowledge. You know, that's very interesting. It kind of reminds me of saying, I'm having to paraphrase here from something Winston Churchill, I believe it was, said, and that is the Victorian parents who lost the nerve to raise their own children sent them off to schoolmasters who retained the nerve. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so many of these children were sent off, boys especially, to these schools. Where, again, the Bible was at the very center of the curriculum, whether it be Eton or Rugby or, uh, or Harrow or virtually any of these schools, uh, even the, the schools that were not directly under the patronage of the church, the Scripture was yeah. – that, that's how they learned to read. And, and that, that's how they, they basically uh, – well, let's, let's put it this way. The, the confidence of their tutors was that, uh, that it would have a moral influence in their lives, even if the tutors were not theists. That's right. Well, Professor Larson, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have to ask you, and, and, and uh, I say this with, uh, with some appreciation for the fact that you just released a massive monograph by Oxford University Press, but I know you well enough to know that, that you have a research project already underway. I'd like to know what that's all about. Yes, I'm, I'm doing a project on the discipline of anthropology and the Christian faith. So it's another one of these kind of trying to retell the story. The, the story that gets told is about how anti-Christian anthropology is. And um, I wanted to get at some of the reasons for that, but some of the mythologies of that. Uh, For example, anthropologists are scathing about missionaries. And it turns out uh, that they're scathing about missionaries, I think, because they steal their work, because they know that missionaries are better anthropologists. They're in the field for much, much longer. They understand these cultures and these languages much better. They steal their work on the field, and they feel guilty about it, and they respond to that guilt uh, by going around bad-mouthing missionaries, that they can't do good work because uh, they are biased and this kind of thing. 
which is the only way they can justify why it's their work that's being published and not the missionaries uh, who actually did the hard work for, for 15, 20 years, and they just came to the field for six months and stole it. Uh, so I'm having fun with that. Well, we'll have fun when you have it published. And in the meantime, let me thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. It is interesting and informative to note the centrality of Scripture in the Victorian age, especially speaking of Victorian Britain. Perhaps that one issue is that which sets it in greatest contrast to our own age, when we consider not just the secularization of postmodern or hypermodern America and Western countries, but rather the fact that the Bible has become so distant from us. We can no longer count on the fact that a person hearing a direct allusion to the Scripture knows either its source or its meaning. There's just a profound absence of the specific content of Scripture in terms of our contemporary conversations. And it's interesting to note that the Victorians, on virtually all sides of the great issues of that day, saw themselves as speaking out of, on behalf of, and consistent with the Scriptures. I enjoyed that conversation with Timothy Larson. It is interesting to go back to the Victorian age. And I ask him a very important question, and that is, why the Victorians? Why is there such great historical interest in the Victorians? And I think it goes back to the fact that it is this early modern Western civilization that we now see coming into shape, especially in Great Britain with the Industrial Revolution and all the rest, with a crisis of knowledge that became a crisis of faith, and as he says, a crisis of doubt in terms of the 19th century. There is this great conversation that's going on in Victorian culture. It is going on, of course, in the elites. The elites always had the privileged access to the conversation. They did before and they do now. But it became a matter of conversation at virtually all levels of society. And all levels of society in the Victorian age believed that these issues were of utmost importance. As we said, they did discuss religion and politics and seemed to discuss little else. And it's because these were the issues of the greatest cultural conversation, the greatest personal interest. The research done by Professor Larson helps to set the record straight on several things. First of all, as he concedes, or wants to make the point even himself as an historian, there certainly was a Victorian loss of faith, a crisis of faith that led many, especially amongst the elites, to abandon any reference to Christianity, any personal faith, and any vestige of theism. And yet, of course, that explains the great lament of the age, the kind of elegies you do see in something like Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach the kind of retreat of faith into an ocean of doubt that, that certainly was understood to be a catastrophic loss, even on the part of many who lost the faith. Unlike the more triumphalistic new atheists of the 21st century, these 19th century skeptics often felt the great loss that had come to themselves and would inevitably come to their civilization by the loss of this kind of Christian conviction. At the same time, Professor Larson comes back to say there was another story, and that story was the recovery of faith amongst some of those who had been the skeptics. They began to weigh the evidence and looking directly at the evidence, having firsthand knowledge of the great intellectual and moral challenges presented to Christianity. They came to see Christianity as more credible than, than atheism or agnosticism or skepticism. They embraced the truths of Christianity, and as he said, many of them had fascinating second careers, as it were, as defenders of the very faith that they had uh, sought to subvert and uh, as proponents of the very faith that they once themselves seem to have lost. In his newest book on the Bible and the Victorians, or the Victorians and the Bible, it's interesting to note again that great central place played by Scripture in Victorian culture. There is a tremendous sense of loss that should come to Christians today in considering the loss of this biblical knowledge in the society around us. 
A society that no longer recognizes biblical allusions, no longer recognizes biblical quotations and phrases and poetry, and of course is, is only vestigially influenced by a biblical morality and a Christian memory. But you know, when I read his work and consider this conversation, I also had the realization that evangelicals ought to look at this book in order to recognize how much we have lost in our own families, in our own churches, and in our own circles. That is to say, there was a deep and pervasive scriptural knowledge. The content of scripture was living and known. Much of it was memorized. The text was, was not only accessible as it was at hand by the, by the development of the printing press, it was, it was accessible to them in terms of their imagination and their memory, having been inculcated in them in terms of their education and their child-rearing and all the rest. Uh, we face a generation of our own who also don't recognize a lot of the biblical illusions that, uh, that are, of course, central to literature, but far more depressingly, a far greater concern. Uh, they simply don't understand most of the central teachings of the Bible in the way that a Victorian young person would have, even if that Victorian young person were not being raised in a Christian home or actually learning the scripture from someone who was not specifically a theist. We're living in a very different set of intellectual circumstances. As Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, puts it, every age has its own set of intellectual conditions, and our intellectual conditions are a far cry from those of Victorian England. On the other hand, the continuities also are important. If you want to see the modern age coming into view, go back to Victorian England. Look at the Industrial Revolution. Uh, look at the educational reforms. Look at the massive social issues. And, and, and look, of course, at England's great age of empire, and you can see what the modern age looks like as it's coming into view. Look through the 20th century and you can see through all the carnage and the clouds of uh, a very morally complex and in some ways morally catastrophic century. And then you come to the 21st century and you recognize we're having a lot of the same conversations all over again. That's when you need to go back to the past and make certain that we understand the conversation correctly, that we know actually what was said and why it matters and why it continues to matter. That's why I enjoyed this conversation so much as we look from the Victorians to our present day, understanding that going back and getting the story of the Victorians more accurate in terms of our understanding is important in order that we have a more accurate understanding of ourselves and our own times. Before signing off, I want to remind you to avail yourself of the full wealth of resources available at albertmuller.com and at sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.